0: There's this kind of situation where I feel like younger flute players or older ones as well, they kind of want you to know your weaknesses. And I always think, you know, pal, I know them. Trust me, I know them a lot better than you do because I'm the one that has to deal with them every single day. My name is Stephen, Stephen Clark. I'm very excited to be here on Creative Baggage. Um, So I'm a flute player. I'm originally from the United Kingdom, from Scotland. And I've lived there my entire life up till now, although I didn't really work there very often because um, initially I started life as an orchestral player. And then I actually stopped playing the flute for just one year. And then I came back and ever since then, so kind of 2010, 2011, I spent my entire working life um, as a soloist, which I kind of hate that job title because I don't think it... Um, really explains anything of what people does. So, but I basically spent my time traveling around pretty much the whole world several times a year, just playing recitals, concertos, giving classes, um, any kind of weird concerts I might get booked into doing as well. And I did that constantly, really solidly, right up until um, COVID kind of stopped everything. Um, so that was maybe like 10 years of really solid, intense travel, which was amazing, but exhausting. And when COVID kind of slowed everything down. I maybe came to the realisation I didn't want to go back to the same lifestyle where I just lived in the airport constantly and was never home. I was like, well, what shall I do? So I decided maybe I'd like to teach a little bit more. So I was like, maybe I should look for a teaching position. We don't really have these in the UK, full-time teaching Mm. positions. So um, I applied for one in America to find out that you guys have this interesting thing called the DMA the doctor of musical <laughs> arts which I've never heard of up to this point this is very much an American invention um, but it's pretty much a, an almost I would say a necessity now if you want to have a professorship out here so um, I got very close to one job and went and kind of was educated into the process of American education and university recruitment which was quite different to anything I'd encountered before so I thought to myself you know what I think it's a good time to get this DMA. I mean, this is the short version. There was a friend of mine who kind of encouraged me to do it. So the University of Alabama offered me this um, fellowship to come out here and and do this, which everyone's like, what, are you going to go back to being a student again after all these years of teaching and playing? And I was like, you know what, I think I'd really like to do it. So I did. So it wasn't a big decision for me. And so I moved out to Alabama in August last year. And I'm currently like living a double life where I kind of like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm a student at the university. And then at the weekends, I usually go do something else, like I fly off and play concert or go to, to a flute <laughs> festival or something. So it's kind of fun, I'm enjoying myself. And I think it's mad that at my age, I'm here being a full-time student um, in <laughs> Alabama of all places.
1: That's really cool though. And that's
0: pretty much it. That's like 15 <laughs> years in five minutes.
1: I think it's so um, it's it's so good for both the school and for you, well, I hope it's good for you, but I think for the school, like to have the younger students have someone who's there with them half the time, but also is doing so much more. Like we had some DMA students that we really looked up to in undergrad and, and like just being able to see the opportunities that they have and how they operate was really, really good for us looking ahead into our careers. It's
0: it's a really interesting balancing act. I mean... You know, the DMA is a kind of strange thing. And there's, how many DMA students would there be here? Three, four, I think there's five of us in total. But four of them are graduating now. <laughs> like, so I'm the only <laughs> one that's left. There's me doing this kind of my first year DMA, if you like. And then there's nobody in the second year of the DMA course. And then there's four of them, I think, in the third year, which wow. is great for me because I've had four new friends, you know, that they've instantly yeah. become friends. And I've told me, Sh- so much about their challenges and negotiations of the DMA course. And it w- I would be lying if I said it hasn't been easier for me because I have had four people guiding me, as well as, of course, the university and the staff and the flute professor and all these mm. things as well. So, but also, like, we just, you know, they're a little bit older than the rest of the students we get on because that was one of my biggest concerns was kind of twofold. First of all, I'm going to be older than the other students. And secondly, well, three concerns. The second one was how do I be a student again? I've been like faculty or staff or visiting guest artists, whatever you want to call it, for 15 years of my life, you know, like, I mean, a lot, all the time. So how do you go from being that person to suddenly having to be quite submissive, I guess is the word. Mm. And I still find that challenging. That's all. And I try so hard not to have an ego and of course, things annoy me and I'm like inside I roll my eyes every now and then. I think, oh for goodness sake, you know, like can we just <laughs> jump past all this bit and just get to the point because I can see the end goal maybe a little clear sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. True. Um, and that is probably my biggest hindrance in being a student is switching the the mental way from I don't want to say being the teacher to the student, but you know, like being this middle, middle man where I was always brought in as a guest to give these classes. Because, you know, as a guest artist or delivering a masterclass, your relationship with the student is very different to the, the relationship that the professor has. First of all, in the UK, we don't have this concept of professor at all. Mm. Really? Um, no, it doesn't exist. Like, if you go to a music conservatoire, for example, or a university, there is no full-time flute professor. What would usually happen would be there's two or three of them and they're all just the local flute players from the local whatever it is symphony orchestra but they'll come in and they'll all do like three hours teaching a week and they'll all have three students and they'll maybe share a flute class once a week together Mm. and there's definite advantage to that and disadvantage as well the advantage is there's lots of people you can pick ideas from Mm. and I loved taking when I was a student in the UK I loved doing that so I would my first year for example of undergrad I had Sorry, my first two years, I had one teacher who was the first flute of the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, very knowledgeable guy, had been there for like 300 years, you know, knew <laughs> everything, had studied with Rampal and Moyes in Paris, was very French school and and we got that great grounding of education. Then in my third year, I actually switched teacher for one year and I went to the second flute player of the Royal Scottish Orchestra, which was a completely different education because I went from having this fantastic French kind of fundamental education to a year of here's how you become an employable freelance flute player. Here's how you pass the sub editions. Here's how you, you know, you get, this is what expected of you if you want to work orchestrally in the United Kingdom, which was kind of crazy. Cause it was stuff I'd never been told before. Well, no, I had been, but you know, we were so focused on playing Ebert concerto and stuff. And yes. Helen was saying, this isn't how you're going to earn your money. You're going to earn your money by being called one hour before the start of Daphnis and Chloe, because the third flute has gone off sick. You know, like, mm. so you have how do you find that sound to blend with a section you've never played with before? All this kind of stuff. It was fascinating. And I'm so grateful for that year. And in my fourth year of undergrad, I split my time with both of them. So okay. I did alternate weeks. So this was such an amazing way of learning. If you want to be a um, performer, if you want to play professionally, this was just incredible. What The advantage of America is that the studio from, I mean, I'm only talking from my very brief perspective of six months, but the studio is very close knit because everybody Mm. has the same professor and everybody meets together regularly for various things a week. And this is something that didn't necessarily happen in the UK because it was a bit more spread. And so it meant the UK was cutthroat, you know, you were battling to keep your place. You were battling to pass the edition. You were battling to win the orchestra positions, all this. Here is a bit more supportive, I guess is the word. and so, there's advantages that come with that. From my perspective, it's very useful because I am seeing a department that's very established with a fluent professor who has done this for years and years and years and years and knows absolutely the insides out of navigating the American academic system, which is what I need the help with the most. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what any of these things mean, I don't know about it, the funding <laughs> applications. And she is so fantastic at just talking to me and saying this is what I have to do as a flute professor and this is what you will be expected to do so learn how to do this now. So sometimes I will go to her and say I really want to play this piece of music to someone please can you listen and give me advice but I would say the majority of the time it's actually not flute related it's um, teaching me how to be a professor not even teaching me how to teach teaching me how to work the system of the American Mm. university and this is like it's like gold dust to me, you know. I've learned so much in six months, things I never knew existed. All this stuff. So it's not so. It's not so much about the music. It's about you're going to have to do so much more over here because this stuff does not happen in the UK. The flute teacher, yeah. as I've experienced, walks in, teaches the flute, gets paid, and walks back out. They don't do anything else. Nothing else whatsoever, and they're paid by the hour, of course, rather than the salary. So this has been really, really interesting. There, there's a few little situations that have cropped up. You know, before I came here, there was two or three of the students, because there's a lot of students here, flute students, had played in in my classes previously. Of course, there was no no planning of me being here. And there was no, I never in a million years would have thought I'd come to do a DMA, let alone at the University of Alabama. So I had no idea (laughs) that some of these people had played to me in classes until they came up to me. And one of the DMA students actually said, oh, I played, I, I attended one of your classes on such and such a thing. And I was like, wow. And that made me feel really awkward at first. But actually, mm. they're so cool about it. They don't care. They're just like, whatever.
1: I mean, to yeah. have you now at their school like as almost a resource or someone that they could reach out to is probably incredible for them.
0: Well, I try my best to let that be there if, if it's needed. But I also don't want to step on anyone's toes. Yeah. And sometimes I think I, because I can get a bit enthusiastic, if that's the word, <laughs> I, I could easily step on someone's toes. So I try and make it very clear... And including the flute professor, that I absolutely do understand my place here at the university. And you know, that can be challenging when, you know, on Thursday I've sat in, you know, a theory class and then I've gone to, I don't know, flute choir rehearsal and then flute <laughs> And then on the Friday, I fly off to the University of something other and give a master class. Mm, and yeah, you have man. like, five hours to switch from being a full-time DMA student into being guest artist, where people are going to like make sure everything is looked after for you and you get to present your math class from cycle and then you fly home. And I think the people that are bringing me into their classes find this really interesting as well. <laughs> and a lot of them yeah. kind of are desperate to talk gossip about how are you finding this weird new life of yours? And I'm not sure if the university are totally aware of how I feel about it. But I don't need them to be. I really don't need them to be because I find them very supportive and very kind and very helpful. And most of the time, I'm totally fine with it. But every now and then, I do have the odd day where I just think, this is nuts. Like, this is a challenging (laughs) Juggle. I sometimes feel like I'm a bit schizophrenic. You know, I have to like, I walk into the building and I have to be a student. And I I try to dress like a student as well. (laughs) I really try to just be a student and just like fit into that. But sometimes it's difficult, you know, like, even in academic classes, you know, they'll be talking about things and I'm like, but this isn't what it's like in the real life, you know, because Mm. maybe no one in the class has actually done that yet. They've not had those opportunities. And so I sometimes just have to bite my tongue and I just think it's not quite how I see this, but I'm here to get my DMA and I have to tick the right boxes along the way. Um, But some of it's really interesting. Like, I'm getting a free education that I would never have. Yeah. You know, like flute, flute pedagogy stuff, I find fascinating. Yeah. I'm quite a geek and I like all that kind of stuff. So there's a part of that in the course. And I know a lot of people would probably hate doing that. But this to me is kind of fun.
2: Yeah, and, and Dr. Schultz is like the best person to go to for that.
0: She's, she's just, just, just like, like a whirlwind of information, you know, Like, and she's a bit of a whirlwind of personality as well. Like she's <laughs> such a big, strong personality. And I, I I'm quite open with her and that I will pick her brains about her relationship with students Not nothing private but something I'm very aware of is most flute players are girls that's just the way it is there's mm-hmm. I think including me three boys in the flute department one is a DMA as well so he was believing very briefly very shortly and the other is doing his minor so he just pops in every so often he's a nice guy and he's He's very supportive of the department, actually attends probably more than most of the full time <laughs> flute students do. He's in for everything. But apart from him, there's not really any other boys, it's all girls. So something I'm very aware of is that the relationship she will have with her department, all being girls, is very different to a relationship I would have with the same department. And this is something we've spoken about a lot. Um, because you know I find this as an orchestral freelancer when I was doing that right after college, where back at college now but right after my undergrad which was like 15 16 17 years ago if i was to go into an orchestra a lot of the time it was female flute sections which is never a problem other than see when you come you know you've got go get changed for your your show that night and you come out and you sit in your chair and whatever they've been talking about in the changing rooms i have no idea (laughs) because i'm in the changing room with all the brass players you know (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I have no idea. So I, I, of course, I'm like, we shouldn't have instrument stereotypes, but they're there whether we like it or not. You know, they really are there. Um, So this was kind of interesting. And I sometimes find this awkward that socially, not awkward, that's not the right word, but difficult. Socially, I didn't always find it as easy as perhaps the girls did because I just didn't have that connection immediately. And in fact, the last orchestral concert I did before COVID, I was just subbing we were doing a couple of things. We did some John Williams galas, and then um, like these New Year Stratus gala things, you know, like a couple of times. And it was an all-male flute section. All three of us were guys. And no one mentioned it. And No one even thought about it until the last day. And I was sitting there going, this is so weird because we were talking about like guy stuff. I'll get shot for saying that. I don't mean this in a sense.
2: (laughs) No, you're good. And then um,
0: I said, oh my gosh, like, this is the first time in my entire life I've ever played in a section with two other guys. And they were like, yeah, I think it is for us as well. And it was weird. Like, it shouldn't have been weird, but it suddenly made it really weird. And we were both, we were, all three of us were very aware that there was no women yeah. in the section. So for me, it's quite interesting. How can I, in the future, if I ever have my own flute studio at university, how can I cultivate a really fantastic atmosphere with, with everyone feeling safe, and with everyone feeling looked after and with everyone feeling like I can be there for them and talk to them Mm. as a guy with 25 girls. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Things like this. So I'm aware of that. And Dr. Schultz is really interesting to talk to about that because she is just so experienced.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I feel like that flute mom dynamic really is like, when I think about flute studios that I've been in in the past and I've been in studios with both male professors and female professors and like, I think all of my female professors took on much more of like a mom role in like yeah. helping us do a lot of things beyond just playing the flute.
0: I'm sure there are professors out there who are very maternal or paternal to their students. I mean, I have one. I had one who was like a granddad to us, you know, Aww. Um, and he would feed us and things. But <laughs> when we were all poor students, you know, I don't. I don't think it's like that here, and it doesn't. It shouldn't be like that here. And I, I think she has a really good balance, actually. Mm, yeah. Uh, so I've learned a lot from watching her navigate that thing because for me that's the thing I'm most concerned with because also I'm not American and let's say I got a job in a a university somewhere first of all I'm going to have three years of difficulty because there'll be three years of students mourning the previous teacher Mm. probably not always maybe they'll have hated them and wanted rid of them but (laughs) often they probably will really have loved them and have had a great relationship and nobody likes change. So I'm aware of this. There'll be three years of having to wait for the new cycle. And then people have to learn how to take me as a person with my sense of humor and my funny accent and all these things. So could you imagine if, you know, like let's say Dr. Schultz was to retire or leave or whatever. She's far too young to retire. But let's say she did and I applied for the job and got it. I think there'd be some students at the University of Alabama who would have a heart attack if I became their teacher, you know? They wouldn't quite know how to take me. And I've already noticed that when I've had to cover for her in flute choir or whatever, some of them struggle with my my way because it's different to her.
2: Yeah. Mm. Um, You know, it's interesting, Stephen, because I think, you know, I I had so much familiarity with UA by chance just because that's where my teacher came from. So I had been to the school and when you told us that you were going there I I was a little confused not that it's not a wonderful program right but I just was like oh Stephen has a lot of choices probably you know um but now that I thinking about who DBS is and what the knowledge and expertise and what you need for your career as someone who wants to be a college professor it's like I think you landed in the perfect spot
0: I did. And it was slightly by chance. I mean,
2: yeah, the
0: only reason I I ever kind of connected with Alabama was because I have a friend in his final year of doctorate on piano. And ah. we had done our undergrad degree together many, many years ago. He was a couple of years older than me. But, you know, studying at the Conservatoire in Scotland, it's small. So everybody kind of knew everyone. But had a similar situation to me. You know, if he wanted to get a really nice job in the US, where the money is and where the security is and all this stuff, yeah. he needed the doctorate. So he he was the trailblazer, not me. He was the one that a couple of years ago took this risk and moved here.
2: And it wasn't until
0: we were talking one day and I had been telling him about my my interviews at this other university in the US, University of Wisconsin, um, and about the kind of totally different process to anything else that I'd experienced and how this issue of the DMA had come up. Because the the process at Wisconsin went on for ages. When I first sent an application, and even before I had my first interview, it was like months, I can't remember. It took a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, then they want to hear you play and all this kind of stuff. So it had gone on for like over half a year, I think. And we'd been speaking about it. So when the issue of the DMA had come up, he had said, oh, you should just come do it. And I was like, no, I could never do that. He's like, (laughs) leave it with me. And literally the next day I spoke to Dr. Schultz and it was kind of done. Uh like she said here's what just fill in this piece of paper can you send me a video (laughs) of your playing and I had all because I was playing full time even in COVID I was still playing full time as such because lots of things had gone online so we'd recorded tons of recitals so I see it here you know when people are doing these like um virtual editions and stuff. It's a scramble to get everything recorded in time. This was fine. I had everything done. I had (laughs) hours and hours and hours of material, of videos. So I literally just went, yeah, no problem. And an hour later, I could forward her all this stuff. And I remember her saying to me, you've done your part so well. And I was like, I've done nothing. Like, I have done (laughs) nothing. I replied to a couple of emails. I filled in one form. I sent you an hour-long recital and that was it. And next thing I know... I have a place at University of Alabama. And then I'm told, you know, there's a particular fellowship they're going to put me forward for, you know, it's never been given to a music person before, so they don't know what will happen in this situation. We have to wait a month. Waited another month. And then I get an email going, congratulations, you've got the Graduate Council Fellowship, blah, blah, blah. I did nothing. I did absolutely Mm. nothing. (laughs) What was interesting is once I kept it totally quiet while I was considering doing this, because The only person that knew was my agent, because obviously I had to say, look, I don't know what's going to be happening over the next year or two of concerts. You might be moving to Alabama. (laughs)
1: Well,
0: that's not so much the issue, but it's like I'm not available every day of the week anymore, you know? Okay. And she's been good. Like as soon as the winter break began, I went on the road again. Yeah, you were like. A bunch of concerts. Yeah. She's she's good in that case. And you know, now that the world's opening up again, there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's certainly more um, requests for concerts than I was expecting. So that's good news. Um, I have some negotiation of visa issues because I can't work in America at the moment for my first what? year because of my... Well, my working visa is revoked while I become a student.
1: Uh, and on an
0: international okay. student visa, you're not allowed to work in America for the first year.
1: Ugh, yeah. American visa requirements are ridiculous.
0: Anyway, so it was a kind of interesting process. But once the... once Then I did put the word out. I just needed to let people know, here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. And here's where I'm going. And when I did do that... I did get other universities getting in touch with me.
2: Mm. Um, maybe three or four. <laughs> yeah. And I spoke
0: with them all. I did speak with them all. And I definitely already felt a sense of loyalty to Alabama, even though yeah. i would never said Roll Tide in my life at this point. <laughs> no. I still felt a loyalty just because they had made it very easy. And also, Dr. Schultz had been in contact constantly. We were talking on the phone a couple times a week already at this point. Yeah. And I felt she was really including me in her flute studio, you know, even when it came to Zoom meetings with the graduating DMAs, she let me join in so I could kind of learn what they're talking about. So she was great. So I already felt loyalty and I didn't feel great about talking to other universities. But at the bottom line, it came down to money, who was going to offer me the best package. Mm -hmm. Um, And Alabama still offered me the best package. There was one other one that kind of almost matched it, but not quite. Some were offering terrible packages. Others, (laughs) Others <laughs> I just didn't like the flute professor. you know, like there was one particular yeah. university, I had a Zoom with the flute professor, and they just didn't get where I was coming from or why I wanted to do the DMA. They were treating mm. me like I was nineteen years old, mm. you know, who'd just gone through the the three degrees and was kind of didn't know what to do with life. It's like, I, I feel like I do have a lot of experience. I'm not talking about quality of playing here because quality of playing has nothing to do with this. That's everyone else's decision of, you know, they can make their own decision about how I play but you can't take away the experience. So it doesn't I'm not talking about whether you like my playing or whether you think I have flaws in my playing. I'm talking about if you look at the experiences that I've had to go through to get to this point, it's substantial. Therefore, I am approaching the DMA from a different perspective. There's no doubt about it. Also the perspective that I have absolutely zero academic music education. <laughs> I've never done a theory class. I've never done a history yeah. class like never that's done weird as well. Never done a theory class at all? No, we don't do this in the You UK. don't
2: do it over there. <laughs> Okay. When you no. go to
0: conservatoire in the UK, you play. You play, you play more, you play a little bit more, and then you play a little bit more. And everything you do is judged on your playing, everything.
2: A, a question I had was, did you have a master equivalent of a master's degree or no, it was just your conservatory no. degree? I did a
0: one-year... I did a one year thing called a postgraduate diploma. This doesn't mm. exist over here.
2: Kind of um, like an It still
0: exists diploma, in UK. Right? It's exactly the same. It's like yeah, what we,
2: Serena, it's what you're doing, probably, Serena. No. Yeah,
0: it's very much a European thing. you so know, yeah, because I have a nobody cares, cares about your academic qualifications mm. here. Nobody, nobody asks that you have a master's degree. Nobody asks that you have an undergrad degree. They ask, yeah. turn up to the edition and take the interview, and then we'll decide who the strongest candidate is or the most suitable mm. candidate is. So, yeah. I did a one-year postgraduate diploma at the Royal Northern College of Music and it was essentially flute lessons and Mm -hmm. a little bit of orchestra and stuff. Uh, I had flute class once a week. I mean, it was kind of a pointless course at that college at the time, but I wanted to study with the teacher. So, but yeah, I had no master's. So that was a bit of a thing here as well. But
2: yeah, University of Alabama
0: were just like, you've got so much experience that constitutes for a master's.
2: Oh, nice. There was another
0: university, a very, very famous music university. I don't know if I should say the name or not. No, I won't. They they had contacted me and offered and suggested I apply for a particular scholarship that was named after a very famous musician. It was all very swanky. And actually, she was very nice and very kind. But the money on this scholarship just wasn't as much as what University of Alabama were going to give her give me. But she also said to me, just do the masters don't do DMA. This is the lady from the other university. Mm. No, masters will be enough for you because you have experience. But I, and I thought about it and I was like, this is a more, I don't know if the more prestigious university. It's certainly, from my British perspective, more well-known for music making. But it's too risky just to do a master's because what happens if I do the master's and spend two years or something like, I think she said I could fast track the master's in a year. So she said, let's say I spend a year doing this fast track master's. And then I apply for a job and they say the same thing. You don't have a DMA.
2: Yeah, no. Just do it's- the DMA,
0: you know, just do the DMA.
2: Yeah, that was especially my, my gut feeling. given that option um, of not having to do, because that's something that I think stands in the way of a lot of um, instrumentalists. It's like, oh my God, to get to the DMA, there's so much you have to do, but you had already done so much hmm. that thank God they acknowledged that. <laughs> I mean, I think the you DMA know? is
0: nuts. I really do. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I know I'm not supposed to say this. I no, think this,
2: this is the podcast requirement, to say it. Yeah.
0: I, I think the requirement for a DMA is absolutely clinically insane (laughs) and i think how many musicians are being turned down who are a clear mile the best choice for the students but they're they're not being offered the jobs because they don't have the qualification the one issue that came up in wisconsin when we discussed the dma i think it was wisconsin was well or maybe it wasn't wisconsin maybe it was somewhere else i forget but how are you going to teach or advise the dma students having not done it Oh. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't have to have done it to be able to advise. You know, and now that I'm doing the DMA, the truth is, if you... T- oh, gosh, this is really going to get me in trouble. I really hope no one from Alabama listens to this. If you take <laughs> the theory class and the history and the musicology out of it, it's not very difficult, the DMA. No. It's really no. not. It's a master's degree. It's really yeah. a master's degree with a few extra bits like the... Com- what do they call it, composite exams, comps, you know, all these, I don't even know what they're called. You know, these kind of finals, like, I get all that stuff and maybe I'm going to shoot myself in the foot by saying that, but I don't feel like I would not have been able to advise someone because I had not done it. I really yeah. don't. I think I'd have advised them just fine.
2: I think the the strange thing is <coughs> some of these schools, because there are some schools that you can teach without the DMA, but there are also schools that don't Give well. They don't give um, a bachelor's degree in the same... Like, they're not universities, right? Well, so like, yeah, it's like like
0: something that is so... Sorry to totally interrupt no, you. No, no, you're good. Um, you know, one of my students... I, I don't have many students because I don't have time, but I have a couple that I'm teaching online every couple of weeks. Um, I think there's four of them. Two of them are very, very advanced, finishing up their master's degrees at other universities. Um, and two of them are just doing it for fun. And I have this one guy who I'm teaching. His name is Nick. He won't mind me saying this. (laughs) And he's probably the most enthusiastic flute player I've ever taught in my life. You know, like he just loves the flute. And he's a nurse. And so he's probably similar age to me, maybe a couple of years younger, but he's got so into the flute that he's like getting a bit obsessed and he's like, maybe I should try and do a degree in flute playing and all this kind of stuff. And we talk about it, but he is far too impressed by people having degrees
2: and I, I keep saying this to him.
0: He's like, "But you know, I want to be. Able, I want to play like a, someone who has a degree." And I'm like, "A degree from where, Nick? You
2: know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. you, know, like,
0: you can go to you know the Royal Academy of Music, and you can spend four years, and you can walk out with a Bachelor's of Music degree, or you could go to the University of Timbuktu, you know, and you could do the same thing and walk out with the same degree. But who's going to play better? You know. Of course, well, who knows? Maybe the Timbuktu person, but. The the degrees are only comparable in name, not Mm -hmm. quality of flute playing. Of course, there's things you'll get in some universities you won't get. Like in my degree at Royal Conservatory of Scotland, I got my bachelor's there. I knew nothing about theory. You know nothing. But people coming from the university of somewhere else will have a much better academic education than I ever did. So that could serve them well in other places. But if you want to play the flute, I wanted to go somewhere that was going to train me and whip me into shape as a flute player. So this is what I'm saying to Nick, do not be fooled by somebody having a degree. And in fact, it got quite funny because I <laughs> scoured the internet for people who had master's degrees but who can't really play the flute very well. <laughs> and I said, you know, and I sent him, it, very yeah. cool, but I, it was my point. I mean, there's, there's a couple you can find, they're, they're comical, you know, they're quite comical. And I sent him a video of a particular person and said, listen to this person play. And then I said, and I said, this person has their master's degree. And then I sent him a video of Emmanuel Behoud playing the Ebert Concerto and I said, this person does not have their master's degree. <laughs>
1: well, yeah. You know, and who
0: would you want to study with?
2: And I think that in America, this is the thing that bugs me is that so much of it has to do with privilege because if you get into a program but you can't pay, you're not going.
1: Yes. You know, And I think that
2: here. there are people who can get in and can afford to do it like okay for me i'm very privileged i come from nice family i've always had everything i needed but i still couldn't afford to pay for a master's degree on my own unless it was free because yeah, i well, live on my own too.
0: if i you know? had, I feel right i would never in a million years have considered doing this i wasn't going to get myself into debt
2: no and i think you know for me it's like i'm doing it on my own now and for your student yeah. there's so much you can do like right now um i work at curtis and I go to the master classes. I am learning things from the students, yeah. from the teachers there that I'm able to use in my playing, and they're paying me. And yeah, I have to do marketing and emails and things no, I think it's like great.
0: I, mean, I mean, this is what I think you're kind of like the example of what we should all be doing in this situation. I mean, but the question as well is risk. It all comes down to risk. Let's say you, you are an absolute hotshot flute player. I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but everyone has this goal at some point in their life. And your goal is to be second flute in the New York Philharmonic or whatever. <laughs> you know, you don't need to have a master's degree to be second flute in the New York Philharmonic. You probably don't even have to have an undergrad degree. They would still hear you if you have the right references, the right resume, uh-huh. the right experience, and you can pass the screening. So if you're that person and you really deep-rootedly believe that you are going to be the next whatever in whatever orchestra, is it worth doing master's?
1: I think I when you like talk at that level, like the bottom line of like the people who are in the audition room for something like the New York Phil, it, it is about who, you know, but also where you get your master's and who you study with makes a huge difference for that. Of and course. so that's why. And I
0: think that that's the, the, the most important thing, who you study with, not just because of who they are, but because of what you learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I say this a lot to people that come for lessons off me or ask my advice. That the UK and the US are opposite in terms of music education. In the UK, we are streamlined and obsessed about orchestral playing. And that's it. There's no one else to study with at university or conservatory level other than orchestral players. I speak oh. generally, but that's the truth. Um, which is gives you a great education because, of course, the orchestral repertoire and excerpts and you know, the skills of playing on ensembles are always complicated. You come out here and we're more academically focused. So yes, you will get flute professors who have performing careers orchestrally and chamber music and solo and all the stuff. And then there's people on the other complete extreme of the spectrum where they haven't really played at all, they just got their DMA. And then there's a whole ton of people in the middle spread across that entire area. So the, the choices are probably greater here, but also more extreme as well. So when people mm. come to me and say, I want to do my master's and here's all the teachers I want to study with who do you recommend? I mean, i have been fortunate that for 10 15 years, I've been playing all the flute festivals, especially in America. So I've met a lot of these people and know a lot of these people and have friendships with some of these people. But I at least have an insight into who they are as musicians and people. But I always say to everyone, go and study, forget the institution, but go and study with the person that is going to align you with the career you want to have. Yes. So if you want to be an orchestral player, why are you going to study with someone who's not an orchestral player? If you want to be a flute professor, why are you going to study with someone who is an orchestral player? If you want to focus <laughs> on chamber music, go and find someone who has a real passion and experience and career within the chamber music field. I mean, I know I narrow it down to just three little things, but there's a thousand yes. things you could do, but you can cherry pick the right person to but help you there. How
1: about for, like, let's say you're applying in undergrad, most people know generally maybe that they want to do music, but they don't know what direction that they want to go in per se. Oh, that's a good question. Well, We're gonna I'm going to take all the advice that you can this. give us. <laughs>
0: I am British and I am brutal when it comes to this kind of <laughs> attitude. I mean, of course there are exceptions, but I think if you really want to play professionally, you can't decide late.
2: Mm. You just can, because
0: you're going to be entering, you know, the lion's pit of additions and and dealing with that. I really think if you want to play professionally, it has to be an absolute obsession.
2: Mm.
0: And there should it should be your center of focus in life. Now, I'm not saying you have to be a bad person and you have to, you know, stab people in the back. and am saying the opposite. You can be a really good person and be really honest and decent. But you have to get so much experience and you have to attain such an incredibly high level of performing. But I think as well, at the beginning of your career, and remember, I'm not really at the beginning of my career in a weird kind of way, but the people that are, you know, a lot of it is just about reliability.
1: And that does associate
0: itself with technique, because the start of your career is probably going to be getting the phone call the morning of, you know, because someone's gone off sick. You have to be able to walk in and sight read incredibly well and play incredibly well and blend incredibly well and play in tune and have no flaw in your technique whatsoever and and be that player, you know, be that incredibly reliable player. Later on in your career, when you're getting, you know, six months notice to play the Mozart concertos on tour, you can be a different person. so this, this is something I, I think we don't talk enough about. And I think there are many avenues people can take in the music industry. I don't think everyone should be becoming a performer. I don't think they're suited to it. I don't think they'll enjoy it. And I don't think ultimately everyone will be happy doing that. And life is short. We should do what makes us happy. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we, we live in a world and we're um, engaged in an industry where we're kind of, maybe not so much in America, but certainly in Europe. If you don't play in an orchestra, you have not made it
1: yeah you know
0: that's the attitude and this is stupid it's stupid because i know plenty of orchestral players who are miserable
2: Yeah, <laughs> miserable
0: miserable people i know some that are the happiest people on the planet as well you know but it takes a certain kind of person orchestral yes. life was not for me it was not for me and i remember there was a, i was waking up in the morning and dreading going to work
1: mm-hmm. mm. and that's
0: horrible to feel like that i've only had that twice in my life um it's and
1: that was doing feeling. it I'm I'm really curious about, because you said that it's really important to have like a direction that you're obsessed with that you really want to go into. But looking at your trajectory, I mean, you said you did orchestra and then you quit for a while and then you came back and you did something completely different from what you were working on before. So mm. how does that story fit into your conception? Well-
0: because I never said that you can't change your direction.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I mean, I've I just changed my direction now by coming here.
2: Right. You, but-
0: have, you have to be changing your direction. You have to constantly be changing your direction to suit what you want to do and what your ambitions are and your goals are, and they will change. But I think to go into, I mean, this is so general. I'm not saying it's impossible, but to go in to a degree and take 15% performance music therapy. I don't even know if you can do that. I'm just making Mm -hmm. up. But you know, like a little bit of everything. And then to suddenly walk out and think that you can stand toe to toe with the Mm. people from, you know, Curtis and Juilliard and Royal Academy Music and and Paris Conservatoire. I mean, it's not impossible, but let's be realistic. And I think do
1: everything thing is so American, though. I mean, I know so many people who like want to get degrees in like five different things all at once. Well, I wonder, though, if that might
0: suit them perfectly in their life. But then you have to be realistic about what happens. I mean, for someone like me with the education that I had at conservatoire, which is wholly playing, imagine I turned around and said, Yeah, I want to, you know. Then be a professor discussing music technology. I mean, I couldn't do it. I had nothing about music technology. (laughs) You know, my goal was clear. And I I think it sounds very brutal. And sometimes I don't like saying it out loud, but that is my gut feeling. And I say it from experience. Like I have been there and done it. And my goodness, see, when you walk into a room with a hundred other flute players and they hear three excerpts behind a screen, it is brutal, absolutely brutal.
2: And I think it's less about what exactly you want to do, but maybe it's more of that you need to be playing, you know? Yes, I get that. It's really less like going in, because I think it's hard to know when you're young, like, even for you and for all three of us, it's like, I went into college thinking I wanted to do orchestra, and that's all that I thought about, right? And then I didn't, but I think what got me and, and you, Serena, and all of us through college was that same obsession that you're talking about. Yeah,
0: that, that obsession um, has to be there. That's, my, that's what I see less and less these days, actually, mm. with young
2: students. No, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but I want to talk okay. about this. When Because <coughs> I quit for a bit, mm-hmm. and I'm just getting back, and I've played for 56 days in a row since the wow. new year. congratulations. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. But I just... You quit, and I wanted to ask you, like, what was that experience for you? And, like, living your whole life thinking you're going to do that one thing and then not doing it? Like, it was how, dark. how did that – I want to hear more about that.
0: It was very, very dark. And yeah. I-, I put a brave face on it at the time. I mean, I was very young. I was, like, 24. How old are you guys, can I ask? Oh, that's for
2: 23. 23. 23. So I
0: was, you know, similar, maybe a year older. And I was thrown into this world – that I didn't, I wasn't ready for, I wasn't Mm. ready for as a person, but as a player, I could not play all the time to the standard that was expected of me. And that was incredibly, incredibly stressful.
2: Mm. And you know,
0: when you have that little voice of doubt in your mind, I mean, it just makes the whole thing worse. It was also a hard-nosed group of musicians, you know, like, (laughs) no prisoners whatsoever. And I just never enjoyed going to work. And I, you know, not all orchestras. There are some orchestras that are a bit bitchy and a bit gospy and backstabby. Mm. My memory of this one was that maybe now, all these years later, I would probably have a different experience mm-hmm. and maybe love it. But back then, I just hated it. And I never enjoyed it. I tried to find moments where I loved it. Like, you know, you get to the end of the concert and I was just like, why am I not really enjoying this? I was just so paranoid about, was I good enough? Was mm. I letting the team down? So there was one day where I was sitting there and the French horns were just to my right. And um, the conductor, who I didn't love, if I'm Mm. to be honest, his... um, No, I can't go into this. I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) His fiancée was a flute player. Yeah.
0: His fiance was a flute player. And I always just felt like he wanted her, you know, Mm. to be playing. And I always felt like um, it was... I kind of had a gun pointed at my head, if you know what I mean.
2: Yeah.
0: So I was sitting there, and this is after a a long time now, and he went up to the French horn player and discussed something with her, and she went, nope, it's 5.01, we're done. And that's the British mentality, (laughs) we don't go past five o'clock, because then you have to be paid overtime, and so the orchestra management don't want to do that. So um, I just remember going, wow, I do not love music anymore because of how I feel about coming here, the stress associated with it, the people I'm having to be surrounded by, the attitude of music is a business. And it's not something, I mean, that's a very naive and kind of immature way of looking at it because now music is a business to me as well as
1: um, Mm -hmm. a
0: passion. But I just remember thinking, this isn't for me. I cannot do this for the next 40 years of my life. I will be miserable. I quit I literally stopped playing overnight I did not practice I did not have a job I started my own business in the UK doing something completely different to music which I did for a year and a half and was so busy and stressed out making this happen that yeah. I never ever gave music a thought which is not the answer everybody wants to hear everybody Whoa. wants to say oh I missed it so much I never thought about it. business,
2: so I feel that but anyway continue <laughs> Yeah. If
0: you're busy and you enjoy what you do yeah. and you're passionate with music or otherwise, you're fine, you know? So I was doing this. Anyway, things changed in um, my, I sold my <laughs> business, blah, 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 blah. I
2: mean, no <laughs> money off it ever, but
0: that's another story. And um, and then an opportunity came along to play briefly mm. with the Andrea Bocelli tour. Um, And this was all very vague and kind of wishy-washy about joining this tour for a a couple of days, which extended into a bit longer. Anyway, through that, I met, I did it. And through that, so I started to practice again, like 15 minutes a day. And all I had to play was Carmen Fantasy, the last two pages. So that's all I practiced. And I played it before years earlier, so that's fine. So I started to practice my Carmen Fantasy and kind of like weirdly cared Mm. a lot less about flute playing than I did before, which probably meant I sounded a bit better than I did before as well. So... And then took on a couple of students. Then a friend of mine in Northern Ireland, which is a little island off the coast of the mainland, UK. It's like a 30 minute flight. He would heard that I had gone started playing again. So he was like, will you teach some of the younger players over here? So they would fly me over once a month to teach these players, which were good young players, standards very high over there. All of them kind of ended up with a career as flute players. So I was flying over once a month. And because I was teaching again and teaching kind of high flying kids, I started to practice again you know i didn't want to be a bad teacher and then as i was playing gigs here and there things would pop up and then i met this girl who was a very very well-known commercial violinist in la and she used to do all kind of things a lot of movie soundtracks Ooh. but also she used to play in cruise ships she used to fly onto these cruise ships and play these kind of concerts she wasn't playing in a bar or something in the corner she was in these huge theaters you know pirate going off she had her own show it was crazy and she was like, you should do this. You know, I was a young guy at the time. So I, she put me in touch with her agent. And one thing led to the another. And I started to do this.
2: <laughs> and it was insane.
0: Like, it was insane. I, they flew me all over the place. And I would go into these huge cruise liners with a little orchestra on board. And we would do this, like, crazy Celtic flute show. And then there was another one around the movie. Like, it was fun. <laughs> you come up through the floor and the smoke I would be you know? like It, was, oh it, was, my it gosh, was mad. The whole other side mad. of music I'd never heard. And I met a lot of people through doing that because there's a lot of well-known musicians doing it on the side because it's a very well-paid gig. Um, So I met a lot of friends through that. And then, you know, I would get... They'd have a music festival here in Romania, or a music festival in America, or a music festival in Poland. They'd say, "Hey, do you want to come play a recital at my music festival?" So suddenly, I had recital work again, a little bit here and there. And you know, then you'd go, you'd fly into Warsaw, maybe not Warsaw, but you know, like somewhere to do a recital. And the university would say, "Hey, come do a class while you're here." Suddenly, you had master classes going on, and it just grew and grew and grew. And then I changed agent, and there was a period actually. I think it was 2017 or 2018, where I was home like six days the whole year. I was never home. I was just on the road, travel, 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 gig, gig, gig. And over the space of eight, nine, 10 years, I literally went around the world to play the flute. Mm. And I am so proud of that, actually. So proud of it because everybody tells us that unless you are in an orchestra, this is not possible.
1: But you're doing it and more than someone in an orchestra. Completely
0: wrong. Yeah, you are. You're seeing the world a lot more. And you're also learning, a, well, I wouldn't say learning a lot more repertoire because they learn a lot of rep, but you're responsible for choosing rep, learning rep. I mean, there was a, mm. the, the worst week, the worst week in terms of rep was in 2018. I'll never forget this year. And I flew <laughs> to Indiana to play Mozart G major which I did. (laughs) And then the next day at Indiana Wesleyan University, it was called, I went in and gave a masterclass. And that night I gave a recital. Mm. So different program already. And then the next day I flew down to Argentina and I played the Eber Concerto. And then I flew from Argentina to Montevideo in Uruguay and got on a cruise ship for three days and played two (laughs) cruise ship shows. And then I got off in, I don't know, Sao Paulo or somewhere and flew to Madrid. And played the Ebert Concerto again. And then I flew to Italy and gave a recital that was different to the one four days earlier. So, in the space of one week, I went to America, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Italy, and Spain and played an Ebert Concerto, two Mozarts, two recitals, and a cruise ship show in a week. Jesus. All from memory. <laughs>
1: Like so, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying
0: that to say like look how amazing I was. I think was like, that is real life. Like that is what was expected of me at the time. And I remember having a very serious conversation with my agent at that point, going, "I cannot do this. This is insane." Yeah. And I actually, my friend Donna, she, like, <laughs> I mean, we haven't spoken. To us. She's the flute professor at Indiana Wesleyan University, and she came. She was in my dressing room before the Mozart concerto, and I was literally practicing it, going, "Oh my god, how does this bit go?" Like I couldn't <laughs> remember it. What? And I was like, what happens if I launch into like Pirates of the Caribbean in the middle of my Mozart? <laughs> because I was playing that on this cruise ship. So, you know, it was so much music in my head mm. that I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. I, it, was, it was the case of every concert was like, just get through it. That was the goal. You know, it wasn't like play the best concerts of your life or, you know, be the greatest musician. It was get through it without doing something stupid. And when you get to that point, you're like, you have to reassess things again. You know, you yeah. have to say, what what's going on?
2: Yeah. Th- well, that's, No, I just, ah, that is such a crazy thing to go from quitting. Makes me a little nervous, but luckily I hate traveling. um, Yeah, if you don't like
0: traveling, this is not (laughs) for you. No, but it's such
2: a, what's really important that I wanted, this is the reason I wanted to bring you on, is that I think there's so much stigma of, oh, they quit, oh, they're not playing anymore, oh, they opened a they opened a dog training business and i was so afraid to quit until i met you and then really? when we talked on clubhouse well, i was like steven quit and look where he is now and i quit and now i'm not i'm not performing i'm not doing any of these things but i'm playing and i'm for the most part enjoying it for the first time in years and i think it's so know, cool to share that that that's what you went through you know
0: clubhouse And COVID in a weird way (laughs) gave me the confidence to talk about that period of my life. I mean, it was a long time ago, but I always felt before COVID, because I was busy and trying, and you know, I don't like to use the word, but I'll use them. I'm not really too cared about what everyone thinks all the time anymore. Like Mm. in demand, if you like, you know, my my calendar was busy, Um, but you have to live that impression. You have to, you know, the busier you are, the more busy you're going to be. And my agent once said to me, you know, Stephen, you should turn gigs down sometimes, and I was like, Why? She said, <laughs> "Why?" Nothing will make you more desirable than to say you're not available.
2: Yeah, and I was like,
0: "Great <laughs> advice, great advice." So I, I was already in demand, and I was living the life of becoming, you know, trying to be in demand. And um, therefore, I never spoke about quitting.
2: Mm. I lived, I
0: lived the caricature of myself. I presented a caricature of the musician I wanted to be. And then when that was taken away from me against my will and I came to the realisation, I love music more than anything and I want to be involved in playing the flute and making music, but I do not want to go back to living that life, then I suddenly was okay to talk about it,
2: Mm. if that
0: makes sense. And now I talk about it all the time. I don't care. I really don't care. And this sounds brutal and somebody recently told me that it makes me sound very arrogant and I apologise if it does. I'm working constantly every day on caring a lot less about everyone's opinion.
2: No, that's not arrogant at all.
0: You know, I, I really don't want to care about what you guys think of me as a flute player. I know that sounds horrible. No. But it doesn't, it can't do anything good for me. You yeah, know, like, you're let's say right. Serena thinks that my my playing is awful. Let's say she thinks it's absolutely <laughs> terrible. Now, she's a nice, kind person. She wouldn't say it to my face, but let's say she thinks it. And let's say somehow I found that out. Does it really matter?
2: No. It
0: doesn't. Because if we're doing this, we are already aware of our strengths and weaknesses. I mean, we all feel like a fraud all the time. You know, that's the reality of being a musician. But you have to, you just have to kind of fight that. So I am very aware of what I am good at. And I'm very, very aware, even if people don't realise it, of what I'm not good at. Mm. Just because I hide it and because I put on a brave face and I walk out to that audience as if I'm the most confident person in the world doesn't mean that I'm not aware of the reality. Mm. So there's this kind of, situation where I feel like younger flute players or older ones as well, they kind of want you to know your weaknesses.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I always
0: think, you know, pal, I know them. Trust me, I know them a lot better (laughs) than you do because I'm the one that has to deal with them every single day.
2: A good teacher doesn't frame it that way, you know, when you learn. And I think caring about it, for me, I had to separate caring about opinions from my teachers giving me feedback that is actually really important that I need to learn. There is a
0: time to be critical. Exactly. There is a time to be critical. And we need that in our own personal development as a musician. But the time to not be critical is the time when you have to deliver to a thousand people staring at you. Yes.
1: It's the momentum and the opportunities. Like once you have those, and it doesn't matter because if you can make the audience generally happy and you get asked to do it again in the future, then you know that you did a good job. And even if you didn't feel that you did a good job, it doesn't matter. It's
0: an interesting thing when concerts get busy and you know sometimes like they expect you to sit at the table at the end and sign cds and all this kind of stuff i don't mm. know if people sell cds anymore but before covid we did i don't know if this <laughs> happens anymore i don't have a cd player anymore i always <laughs> just think who's buying these cds who actually has a cd player anymore? <laughs> yeah. anyways yeah you know, you'd sit there and sometimes the line was really long and you'd go through this and almost everyone was lining up to either buy a CD or to say thank you. Not everyone would buy a CD, but they just want to say, oh, I loved it, blah, blah, blah. Uh I saw James Galway play in 1971. That (laughs) That was the conversation. But sometimes every single night, at least once, out of 100 people that would line up, someone would be there to tell you that they didn't like something. What? Oh yeah, this happened a lot, and it was all like at first it, it breaks your heart a bit, and then you kind of start to try and find the humor in it. I mean, imagine
1: they waited in line to tell you that they yeah, didn't like. Imagine <laughs> waiting
0: for fifteen minutes in line just to tell someone that you didn't like what they were wearing, or you didn't yeah. like the choice of piece, what? or why did we? You know, this was something you play this recital, right? And you do I don't know. Let's say you do like a bar sonata, um, a couple of French pieces. For not Sonata, I don't, like a recital, you know? Like, out of the 200 million pieces there are in the world, you chose eight, five, let's say, right? Someone would line up and say, Why on earth did you not play the Sonata number 412 in B-flat <laughs> by Leclerc? You know, I really am disappointed you didn't play that piece. And I mean, you thinking, Really? Like, out of all the music <laughs> yeah. I could have chosen, that of course is going to be something that you didn't get. But, and it always used to make me laugh. Um, But it's just the way people are. I had this lady once who lined up. This was in New Zealand. I remember flying to New Zealand from Vienna and I was there for two days to do one concert. It was crazy. So, and then I was coming to Detroit, actually straight from New Zealand. So, and I remember this trip because the flight from New Zealand to Detroit, I can't remember how I got there, maybe through LA, I guess. I landed in America before I'd left New Zealand because of the time difference, so I kind of time traveled for the week. So I had eight days in my week instead of seven, which oh I my think was kind
1: God. of fun. but um,
0: <laughs> I lined. Up, I, I was doing CDs at the end of the New Zealand thing, and this lady lined up, and I noticed her because she had a really bad black eye, and of course she noticed someone um, like standing in this line, and she she got to me eventually. And she handed me the CD because, you know, they would buy the CD like from the person down there oh, and then okay. they would come get it signed. So um, and you have a system because, you know, you want to go back to your room and get your cheeseburger before you have to get <laughs> sleep for the airport. So you don't want to talk to everyone for too long. So I kind of had this system of like 15 seconds a person and wind them up. Sounds brutal, but you just have to. So I was talking to her and um, she went, I said, who can I sign this for? And I can't remember the name, but she went, oh, sign it for Bailey, my friend Bailey. And I was like, no problem. Are you Bailey?
2: <laughs> and she went,
0: "No, Bailey's my friend." And I was like, "Oh, cool. I hope she enjoys it." And she said, "But Bailey's no, ba- Bailey died." <laughs> and I was like,
2: <laughs> "Okay, okay. So I'm signing, I'm signing
0: a CD for a dead so, you know? And I went, and so I was a bit for things like this would happen all the time. So I went, "Okay." um no problem i'll sign it for bailey and she went but bailey is always here watching and i was like oh, okay well i hope bailey enjoys the cd oh and she god. went could you sign it from wolfgang
2: <laughs> oh my god like,
0: you want me to sign it from wolfgang <laughs> and she's like yes and i was like okay who's wolfgang and she went you're wolfgang <laughs> I'm real and I was like I am and she went yes Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart
1: and I thought That's she was so just scary. like saying
0: because I, I think I played Mozart she was saying like you know you like, you played Mozart really nice and I was like oh well, I'm very <laughs> flattered and she goes you do realise in your previous life you were Mozart <laughs> and I was like security <laughs> like it was it was just cra- and of course you, everyone's listening to the conversation and I'm like I have no idea what
2: to say. Oh my God. That's if you amazing. should have been there for another second, you might have needed an exorcist.
1: If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave us a review, and consider becoming a monthly donor. You can also follow us on Instagram at creative.baggage and check out our website, creativebaggagepodcast.com.